Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages. We're back to the West and my guest this week is Henry Boston. Henry Boston is the inaugural Executive Director of the Chamber of Arts and Culture in Western Australia, a peak advocacy body for immersion, expansion and celebration of such content in the West. The organisation's vision is to develop Western Australia as a leader in arts and culture. Retirement from this position has not dimmed Henry's fervour as a passionate supporter of what the arts can accomplish. Western Australia has a rich creative output and reach, boasting their own orchestras and galleries, opera, ballet and theatre companies, in addition to an annual festival that receives world recognition. Henry spent a good deal of his career as a proponent of all that is artistic in various roles at the Festival of Perth, where he graduated from stage manager to general manager. Not bad for a young bloke from the UK travelling to Australia in search of adventure and along the way embracing the many facets of the theatre. Technician, lighting designer, production manager, performer and director. His many skills have been informed by a lifelong submergence in the theatre, making and presenting art, while also championing it as an avid audience member. In this episode of Stages, Henry reflects on the essential need for the arts in a community and the many experiences and personalities that he's encountered in an extensive career. Now, I'm sure I'm uh, speaking to the converted, but I'd like to begin with a quote from the German dramatist Bertolt Brecht, who said, All arts contribute to the greatest of all arts, the art of life. The arts are uh, really ex- essential to our existence, aren't they? Well, I would believe so, yes, because I suppose I've always felt um, that it's the artist's voices, whether it be through spoken, sung or through what they make, that reflects the human condition, um, that makes a commentary about it, that talks about the struggles of being a human and the joys of being a human. So in many ways, I've always seen the arts as the interpreters of the human condition. How, how do you defend the arts to anyone who perhaps labels them as elitist or just for the talented? Well, I think the problem always comes with the definition of the arts. Arts and culture actually has um, a sort of lot of baggage around it as far as many people are concerned. Um, I've always likened them to a bit like the uh, green vegetable on the plate. <laughs> Uh, for some who go, oh, I should, for some who say, well, you should eat it, it's good for you, and then you'll grow to like it. Um, but it's also, it's such a narrow definition uh, that does, I don't think, the arts and culture and the broader aspect of it, any service. We all indulge in, uh, or all engage with the arts, one way or the other, throughout our whole lives. Uh, I sit in a room here listening to, talking to you and around there are pictures on the wall. Yeah. I'll sit in anybody's room and there'll be pictures on the wall. There'll be wallpaper, there'll be furniture, there'll be, you know, all sorts of things which are all the product of a creative mind. Uh, I've often thought that, oh, actually what I've always wanted to do, one of my periods of advocacy I was thinking that we should actually do an advertisement of um, a number of people, families, whichever, whether nuclear or whatever family, sitting there and one's working, reading the paper, one's 
um, looking on the iPad, one's watching telly, one's, you know, and take away all the things that um, have been made through creativity. And you end up actually in a room that is bare walls, concrete, naked people with a blank sheet of paper. Yeah. And that's if you remove everything that's been made. And that to me is what all part of arts and culture. It's that creativity that makes things, uh, that helps people to see things in a different way. Um, maybe reinforce how they do see it but it is in many ways if you aren't curious then you probably aren't going to get engaged with arts and culture do we suffer a bit because we're a sporting nation well i happen to be a bit sports crazy myself so i don't see well yeah, yeah i don't see them as mutually exclusive that's the that's the real sort of uh, conundrum for me personally is you know I can have a long conversation about various sporting codes I hope with some insight into what they're about and the tactics etc and uh, enjoy that just as much as I can have a long conversation about a particular thing I've seen or I've heard and music I've heard uh, those who seek to sort of define them as mutually exclusive are probably in some ways in both camps, whether it's sports and arts camps, are probably being exclusive in their own desire to see more of the world and understand more of the world. I've never really... uh, bought into that except of course where you see the sort of amount of investment and spending that's put into various things such as a billion dollar football stadium yeah then you kind of go well wouldn't it be nice to also see a similar sort of investment into um, a part of activity that actually attracts more people over the year to that activity than the, all of the sporting codes. Yeah. So it, it's it's the decision-making that sometimes is mutually exclusive. And uh, and that, to me, is is not necessarily the sign, sign of an enlightened community or society or political leaders. The arts are very good for our well-being as well, aren't they? They have tremendous therapeutic value. I'm thinking of mental health and Absolutely. emotional intelligence and... I mean, we've, you know, when I was at the chamber, we we published a a compendium of stories called Articulate WA. And the whole purpose of that was to actually illustrate and to try and break down this view that arts is for an elite few. And if you don't know the sort of, you don't have the keys to the literature, to the to the secret password to understand it all, then it's not for you. The impact of, of arts goes much broader than people quite often see it. So uh, if you have people having to dance, working with people with Alzheimer's, music working with people with Alzheimer's, etc., uh, dance with people working with MS, uh, they... 
their, the, the actual practice of what they're doing and the engagement with it is, has a, actually a physical and mental uh, benefit to them uh, over and above the pure aesthetic enjoyment of a beautiful bit of dance or a beautiful piece of music. Hmm. You were the inaugural Executive Director of the Chamber of Arts and Culture. You've recently stepped down. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what was that? What is that body, and and what did the job entail? Um, well, the body was uh, is a peak body for arts and culture in Western Australia. It's it's unique in in Australia. There is no body that actually embraces at the breadth of membership, because we had people from literature from museums, from galleries, from the film sector, uh, as well as the performing arts, visual arts. The breadth of that membership was all, and its single vision was, really to promote arts and culture, the full breadth of it, as something that is important to both societal and political thinking. Ultimately, that's what we wanted to do, to move what was seen as a sort of add-on in many cases, certainly in political level, to something more central and say this is an important and absolutely essential part of what makes a um, healthy and happy society. Do the other states share a similar organisation? I, uh, they have their own peak bodies, but they don't necessarily embrace the breadth of art forms and practice that we did. I think we're, there are not many in the world. In fact, I think there's a, England has the Creative Industries Federation, uh, which, which actually was started after the chamber. uh, And there might be one other somewhere in the world. In that sense, we're unique in Australia, certainly. And in, in many cases, the envy of, of, of the other states because we put, we used to put through, or we still put through, I don't put it through myself now, but um, the whole premise was to make that argument both to government, to business and to the community that this is something that should be, uh, this arts and culture is something that should be cherished and should be nurtured and should be enjoyed and should be questioned and argued about and debated, but ultimately should be recognised as an important part of who we are. You're also at the Perth Festival for a a great period of time. Why is a festival important to a community? Gosh, all the big questions coming out now, Peter. Um, Because it's an annual or biannual? Annual. Annual, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Festival of Perth, as to give it its title when I was there, is is an interesting example of a festival that grew organically um, into a major multi-arts festival. Uh, when you look back at the history of it, it really started um, out of the University of WA's summer school. Uh, people came back from the Second World War, a lot of soldiers came back, and they had left at the age of 17, 18 to go and fight. So they'd missed their tertiary education. They came back and many of them were going onto the farm and they were expected to go back onto the farm and work on the farms. 
but they'd missed this really important part of their education. And so the university would hold a summer school, which was post-harvest, so in January, February, uh, for those students, for those young people, men, women, to um, some recapture some of that learning, which they wouldn't, they had missed out on. And to in the evenings, they would do make them entertainment for that period of time because they were all living, you know, in Perth, and they'd come to live in Perth, so they had, you know, social events during the evening, and they became more of an entertainment. The entertainment became more and more sort of sophisticated in the sense and um, by 1953 I think when the Edinburgh Festival started there were a group of people who said well why don't we do one here why don't we have a festival here and taking the UWA model um, Fred Alexander who was one of the great drivers of education he was screening foreign language films in those days you know so Fred Fred has a great legacy there um, and that was the early the early festivals. Uh, and up until about 76, when uh, where between Fred Alexander and briefly for one year, I think a guy called Ian Chancellor uh, was the festival because I think John Berman, who was Fred's successor, wasn't well or something. Uh, Ian Chancellor, who then went on to be the Wizard of Christchurch, I think he ran it for one year. But there... there it had of probably more modest than the festival we know now. Uh, and then when David Blankensop was appointed in the 76, he introduced far more internationalism. Uh, they'd done a lot of uh, work with the Elizabethan Theatre Trust, um, Australian Elizabethan Theatre Trust, so they toured some of the works um, that the AETT were touring um, but really uh, it didn't have the degree of uh, international content that steadily grew under the Blenkinsot years. What was your role at the festival? Well, it... <laughs> it changed. When I, it when, when I agreed to do this interview, with you, <laughs> this conversation with you, Peter, I, um, I did a little bit of thinking about, you know, how many ways did I engage in the festival? And I worked out that I probably am, I'm not sure whether I'm unique, but I'm pretty close to it in terms of I acted as a stage manager in it, I acted as a production manager in it, I acted as a tour manager in it, I've acted as a, a technical director and general manager and a programmer, but I also actually acted in it in a show in the festival, which uh, just prior to me sort of joining the festival, I was actually... Uh, performing in a show in the festival. Well, I wouldn't so, imagine there'd be too many folk who could make that claim. It was one of those sort of... Uh, <laughs> it made me smile when I realised that, <laughs> that I'd had that sort of multifaceted uh, connection with the festival. And, of course, I think having worked backstage, having performed, um, not very well, I might add, uh, gave me a greater understanding, I'd like to think, of... Uh, the needs of performers and artists and therefore um, didn't necessarily see 
um, shows and arts as necessarily a product that was to be sort of programmed into the festival without really understanding the reasons for doing it and why people were doing it themselves. And I hope that meant that I, when I got to the, the role of both as a, a general manager for the festival and a pro, part programmer, that I could empathise enough not to ask people to do things that really didn't sit well with the intent of what the festival and what the show was about. Yeah. Um, you know, we constantly try to find the right venue rather than just trying to fill a venue and to get bums on seats. It was also what served the piece best. And to that extent, we went to all sorts of lengths uh, to try and find a venue that was appropriate. Um, you know, I've the Mahabharata in 1988 up in Boya Quarry. Yeah. Uh, in hindsight, only a madman would think that we could do that. But, you know, it was the middle of nowhere. We had to bring fresh water on site. That meant pumping it across, you know, from quite half a mile. We had to bring power on site. So it meant bringing in power, actually bringing cable, um, lighting, but not generators because they had to be dead quiet. So we got Synergy or Western Power or whatever it was called then, Sequa, I think it was then, um, to put a substation in for us there. Um, the Peter Brook um, had said that he wanted absolute silence, so we diverted the air traffic because it was overnight, uh, a couple of the shows. So we diverted air traffic and talk, had to talk to Perth Airport about um, whether it was possible to make sure they didn't use a landing that flew directly over the quarry because it was up near the airport in one way, one of the flight paths. An opening night, you know, I thought I'd done really well and I'm sitting there and just about 10 minutes in there's this and I remember David who was a few rows in front of me turning around and glaring at me like I thought you said there were no plates and it had been some single engine that was going to Jandicott Airport which was sort of uh, not the, the commercial airport so uh, I had to have a phone call to Jandicott the next day and say can you make sure that doesn't happen again and pray for uh, no rain too, I guess. Yeah, I mean, rain was. Look, February, March, uh, January, February, March was is always a pretty safe bet. I mean, we've had a few. We've had a hurricane uh, come through. I know uh, when we did the cars that ate Paris, and I can't think exactly which year, we did have a storm that came through, cyclone, something, Alby maybe. Um, which meant we had to shut everything down. Uh, that was Lyndon Terracini directing that. Um, yes, there was rain from time to time, but really, it's, a, it's much safer than doing it somewhere where the weather is much more variable. What about handling the artistic temperament, the personalities that would sort of, the artists that would arrive at the festival? Were there any sort of problematic individuals or groups? that had big demands for their service or... Well, well I think there was... I, I, I was yeah, I'm not asking yeah. you to tell tales, but, but how do you deal with those 
Look, I think some some of it you... I, I was lucky that I'd actually been a stage manager for a fair bit of time before I hit the festival and had had to deal upfront and personal with with people who can be what as we call it termed difficult yes <laughs> um, my assessment is that people are generally difficult if they haven't made it and therefore they're frustrated and take it out on you and they want to you to be treated as if they've made it or if the, i.e. if they're on the way up or they've haven't made it people who've actually really talented and sure of themselves and confidence in themselves are surprisingly easy to deal with and then you have the perfectionists and I don't think I could I don't call perfectionists difficult I call them perfectionists and I can understand where they're coming from high expectations they have high expectations they want it right it's you know fortunately because we didn't do too much in the rock and roll area and mainly if we did have rock and roll in there, it was probably um, by arrangement with a, an agent that was um, a, a, a promoter that was touring something. Um, we, so we didn't deal hands-on with that, those, those artists. We didn't have, I'll only have the green Smarties or the green M&Ms or whatever. Yeah. You know, that, that's the sort riders. of command. Yeah. Those riders. We had some riders, which, you know, I would, I'd go crazy. I mean, the... Chicago Symphony Orchestra, for instance, which we toured in 1988, a part of the Australian Bicentennial Tour. Now, with George Schulte, Sir George Schulte conducting, what an amazing orchestra. Um, And they had, and, and that orchestra was actually run by a committee of players. So they, and their demands were that they tour with their own sea chests. This is over and above the equipment that they have, but they had their own sea chests, which I, you know, I'd understood that when they went to Japan, the sea chests had been loaded with bricks, I believe, um, so that the weight between the sea chests going in and the weight between the sea chests going out would be no different. So they bought all, they got rid of all the bricks and bought all their other stuff, right, and take it Two out. So, and we toured them around Australia so um, and Rocco was backstage and Rocco was clearly the Teamsters appointee and that was the deal that Rocco had to be part of the tour to make sure that there weren't any sort of um, uh, things done that were against Teamster rules or some deal to keep the employment um, sort of environment stable and Rocco did nothing he just stood there and, and had opinions about various things and I clocked fairly quickly that Rocco was not there for to help out he was there just to have to a holiday have a holiday absolutely uh, but we toured them uh, I think we had three freight liners that um, we had touring them through uh, Australia and uh, because the cost of flying that stuff around Australia, the amount of gear they had, would have been prohibitive. And in fact, we saved some money what we were doing. Um, but it did mean that we spent quite a nervous time when they were going, say, from Perth to Adelaide. 
um, try to remain in contact with uh, the freight, um, the prime movers to make sure that everything was okay. Interesting times. Touring orchestras, I learnt a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> a lot of people. Tell me about Little Henry. Where did you grow up? Ah, well, I was born in Liverpool. Right. Home of the mighty Liverpool Football Club, hence my sporting um, affiliation. And um, uh, I went to boarding school when I was six uh, and um, went to various boarding schools around uh, England. Uh, My grandmother, who lived in London, just off the King's Road, uh, which was a fascinating place to uh, stay with her a number of times. When, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, Kings Road was certainly a very happening place. Uh, and she loved get, going to musicals and things, so she used to take me to, uh, my sister and I, to musicals. So, you know, we were exposed at a very early age to the, the wonder of theatre. Um, not only musicals, but films, premieres and things she which you take us to things. So I remember seeing How the West Was One and there's a particular scene in How the West Was One where there's a buffalo herd stampeding towards the camera. We were in the front row of the cinema and honestly, I was I was under the seat by the end of it because I was terrified. So, so it's in a cinemascope or was it yeah. That sort of, yeah. Yeah, I was like, whoa. Um, the, so I was exposed, I suppose, in, in many ways to the arts from a very... Um, early age and at school I did acting uh, because um, I was actually a very small child Um, uh, people are somewhat surprised I was small for my age and therefore sort of I had to I couldn't fight with my fists I tended to fight with words and perform in that sense so um, because uh, you're about six foot two now, are you? A little bit yeah. more, yes. So when did, that growth, <laughs> when did that growth spurt happen? Oh, that happened when I was about uh, 13, 14, 15, right, yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, initially, and so I was in a few school plays. Um, I do remember one that I played the, you know, the before the J. Arthur Rank, they always had that, the, the um, big symbol, the big gong. gong. Yeah. And they dressed me up as the person in a sort of, lion skin to do that and clearly that was meant to be a real joke I was actually quite offended by it in hindsight because it was sort of making fun of the sight gag it was a sight gag and me I was the (laughs) puny little boy who you know who was the butt of the joke so Um, but yeah and then you know I went to university I went to uh, secondary school in Lancashire to a Jesuit school there where I was taught drama or I, one of the teachers there was a guy called Melvin Morrow. And Melvin Morrow... Not Melvin in Sydney. Yes. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, wow. He was my... He, he directed me in a few shows there. Uh, we went to Edinburgh with a show, um, Frank Ass, which was his sort of musical about Francis of Assisi. Um, and he did a couple of other shows. So, so yeah, that's where I was performing. Generally... I had a few sort of boys in tights things and then I did finally did The Real Inspector Hound, I think was the last one I did. I refused to do Jesus Christ. He wanted me to do uh, one of the Dennis Potter plays with 
and I said, look, I am not hanging in front of, you know, 600 boys with a loincloth on. I'm not doing that. <laughs> but it's the lead. <laughs> I, I wanted a comedy lead. I didn't. But you, you trained to be an actor, didn't you? In university? Uh, well, I did drama and classics at university at Bristol. So, um, I, I mean, I'd always had a hankering to be an actor. Uh, and... And so, yes, I, I'd, I, to be honest, I just don't think I had either the talent or the, probably the, I didn't put enough work into it either. Hmm. If, if I did have the talent, um, I, I uh, enjoyed the performance, but probably didn't do as much work on it. And I'm not sure, uh, yeah, as I said, I don't know whether I actually had the talent or ability for it. But I did do it, and um, you know, I I realised after a while that I wasn't that good, and and I agreed with a lot of other people who thought I wasn't that good, and uh, ended up moving further and further away from the stage, I suppose, in terms of backstage and then front stage and um, working, uh, you know, in the administration and then into advocacy, I suppose. Were your parents supportive of a career in the arts? Um, my mother, which I only found out later, was actually has always wanted to be an actress, but her parents wouldn't let her. So she was actually reasonably supportive, I think. I never felt that they went, as I probably did to my kids, I'm not sure why you're doing this, you'll never make any money and you'll have a life of poverty. Um, I think uh, she was always supportive. She'd always turn up to shows, etc. Now, I, I mean, I went to boarding school when I was six and I left when I was 18. And I worked out that really, you know, two thirds of the year, I was not actually at home. I was at school. Um, so the interaction with my family wasn't actually that great in that sense. So um, in, in terms of the influence that they had on my choice of career, I would say they had minimal influence on it. I mean, I did what I wanted to do. Uh, when I said I was going to do drama and classics at Bristol, they didn't seem to see a problem with that. Uh, they uh, And then I dropped classics pretty quickly because it was a lot of hard work to do. There was a lot of reading. I mean, I'd done uh, Greek and Latin at, at school and I'd you know, reasonable results with it so it wasn't as if I couldn't do it yeah. it was just I, I was once I discovered drama at university actually once I discovered university you're talking about a kid who was at boarding school single sex boarding school yeah. between the age of 6 and 18 going into a university environment Other there things were so many distractions <laughs> none of them to do with learning well all of them to do with learning none of them to do with academia but character building <laughs> oh, somebody is <laughs> I think you could say that um, have your kids gone into the arts well funnily enough my uh, having told them not to do it um, my son is now working in radio in London so he's a, a producer on a radio show there so I suppose he's gone into some form of it um, my daughter, no. She's, 
she's actually thank goodness a physiotherapist because she's terrific <laughs> at what she does she's a very good so I, I you know i think that they both enjoy what they're doing for me That's it cool. was it's about being happy being um healthy and enjoying what you're doing in as and and work is not work it's really an enjoy an extension yeah. and i think that was i've always felt that i was very lucky in that sense that i whatever i was doing with a couple of exceptions but with whatever i was doing i never felt like i was going to work i was actually going to have another fun day and you don't mind when those extra hours have to be navigated no because and, uh, there, there is a lot of overtime in the arts really, absolutely a lot of work and, I, I, and I and I and in many ways it's not conducive to married life yeah and certainly not to married life when you have two small kids um, that that sort of finding a work-life balance I think finding work-life balance is is very hard anyway but if you are so in love with what you do uh, you get very confused about priorities when you start taking on responsibilities like children yeah. and I'm not sure I really well I know I didn't do very well there yeah. so it's a it's um it was a tough uh, conundrum which I don't think I solved what brought you to Australia well the, sh the short answer is a container ship <laughs> boom boom <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah I was offered um, the ability to work my passage on a container ship for 35 quid and I thought I was coming out for six months this was back in 77 just as a holiday or to just explore to the place yeah. just place. I spent hours questioning myself should I should I not should I should I not and uh, and there was quite a lot of feedback at, at home from various friends oh you don't want to go over there it's a heathen place you know you'll hate it it's barbarous you, you know there's no culture or anything there and and you know I, I kind of it, it, it took me at least a, a while to suddenly go hang on I can't go there if I don't like it I can always come back yeah. why am I worried about this but if I don't go I will kick myself later on I will be going I wish I had done that so so I came. I'd, I knew one person, Melvin Morrow, really. Two, a guy called David Mitchell, who had worked on the um, Channel 9. The Mike Walsh Show. Mike Walsh Show. Uh, and indeed, I, I interviewed David last week. So oh, did you? He'll be an episode coming up. All right. Yeah, well, yeah. David. So I slept on David Mitchell's floor oh. for a while. So when before he and Vic, Vic got married. Um, so... Uh, yeah, it's uh, so I I slept I, I um, stayed at uh, Melvin's sister's place Donna he had a, who was a nurse in North Ride or somewhere like that and then I moved to David Mitchell's and slept on his floor because David and had known Melvin from these uh, musical days that we're putting on shows and, my, and they went on to write uh, the Johnny O'Keefe musical and right, Dusty right. Springfield Dusty, yeah. yeah but previous when David uh, we knew David because that was early on when Melvin was doing Frank Ass, then he did another show and my mother and 
stepfather had helped him in, I think, in trying to get it on in America or something. So, you know, we, we had a connection there. Yeah, slept on a the floor there. Well, I got a job within about a month of getting there um, at Marion Street Theatre. Oh, you're up there. Yeah. Was John Crumble there then? No, uh, John might have been. Uh, well, I was Milson, the, John Milson. No, no, Milson. Milson I dealt with later at the Hole in the Wall here. Um, no, I think I was. Do, I did a show for a director called Ted Craig. And Ted, was, and I think it was called Double H. And the cast was. Oh, God, no. Anne Hattie, Peter Adams, and Max Meldrum. So they were, who were sort of film, uh, TV stars, yeah. I think. So uh, I did that, and then one of the shows that had previously been done at Marion Street was then going. The Australian Elizabethan Theatre Trust had taken it on as a to tour it around Australia, and it was called Tarantara Tarantara, which featured Phil Scott. Which yeah. featured Phil Scott. Yes, I noticed he didn't mention it in his. Well, you Interview. cut it out, but <laughs> yes, Phil. So. I mean, for what was, I was a relatively callow youth, I have to say, you know, I would have been 22, 23, and um, that was quite a cast for that. John Ewing. Oh, great, yeah. Johnny Hannon. Yep. A guy called Ray Park, John Farson, Julie Chenery, I think, Barb Howard, Rosalie Howard, Rosalie somebody. Um, yeah, Phil Scott was in there. So um, we taught, uh, it, it was, it had a set that had been built from Marion Street and we toured it round Australia. It was a nightmare. Did it hold up the set? I spent most of my time patching up, carving <laughs> it. I, I spent times with the various um, technical guys in where we went to. So we, we started off in Princess Theatre in Melbourne. And then I think we went up to Brisbane to what was then uh, His Maj- Her Majesty's. Yep. I've forgotten it's no longer his uh, And during that period of time, I was we were carving up the set, pin hinging it, so that we could pack it down because it was going on to it went on to freight, and because it didn't travel in any cases or anything, the whole thing used to come out splintered. I mean, it was just, it was a nightmare. I spent all my time, I thought I was going to see Australia doing the touring because we went to, um, apart from Melbourne, uh, Brisbane, we went to Hobart, the Theatre Royal. Uh, We played the Adelaide Festival Centre. We played um, Perth Regal, the Regal Theatre here. And then we went to Canberra Theatre. So... It was so it's pretty, almost of the states. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, except for Darwin. But I spent <laughs> all my time <laughs> in the theatre, cutting and patching and doing all of that. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, but it was, uh, you know, it, it helped. And Perth was the most hospitable in many ways. Um, you know, when I, I, I didn't know anybody in the, in the business really because I'd only been out a month or so. Um, and they put me in up with various people and paid a sort of rent 
when I got to Perth, I didn't know anyone, and I was at a hotel, and it was costing an arm and leg. And anyway, eventually, I ended up staying at this place um, because the stage manager knew somebody, and um, and while I was in Perth, and I was finally, it was just a little bit more welcoming, and I was offered a job. And they said, when you come back, we want you to do this, this, we want you to work for us. And I thought, oh, that's great. So I went off to, in in the theatre, yes. yes, by a guy called Rob Staples, or Bob Staples, who was um, provided you know, staging for various things. And, um, and I went to Canberra and then I came back here and he told me that the job no longer existed. Mm. So I was stuck here for a while and then started working for various things like the WA Ballet and then the Hole in the Wall. I spent a few years with the Hole in the Wall. Um, um, and Milson, John Milson was there. And John was AD. there, well, there was Edgar and John, yeah. John was there, yes. Heart. John. So he'd say heart. Yes, I did, he you have, to, did you have a nickname? Because he gave everyone a nickname. Um, no, uh, what did, he always used to say, hi, Henry. Hmm. And, I, and because he was small, I used to say, low, John. <laughs> it was, uh, so, yes, he and his Roth, untipped Rothmans and disappearing teeth. Um, but uh, a great guy. Yes. Uh, uh, but we, you know, we were, and then Ray Omidai, um and Ray had this mad scheme that he was going to do, we were going to do plays in repertoire, which were, we were going to build up to doing, was it four or five shows? Like an English repertory company? Or? Yeah, one every night. Wow, that's a big, big ambition. It was a big ambition, and the one thing I did, apart from nearly losing my sanity, um, there were two stage managers, myself and one other, Helen Gadecki, and I was doing the lighting for some of the shows. Uh, was to when they asked me to do this, I said, "Okay," I said, "This is going to take a lot of time," and they said, "That's fine." I said, so they wanted to put me on a flat rate, and I said, "No, I'll do for that rate for this amount of money. I'll do forty hours." But anything above that, you're on. The, you know, we were on a, a different rate and things. And they came to me after they'd been doing it for a while. And they said, "We can't afford to do this because you're costing us too much money." And I said, "We, well, I told you at the first place that this was going to be many hours." I said, "I'm going to bed at um, you know midnight, having bumped out the last show and things, and I'm getting up at I'm getting into work at nine o'clock for the rehearsals we're doing." during the day I said and I'm not getting a break I mean I'm fried but you know we kept going so Is was, a lot of producers like to take advantage of your goodwill don't they well I think it was it was a vision yeah. and you know you you either bought into it or you didn't but it, it did I mean it provided work for a company of people I mean it was the first time really for a while that they'd actually had a company at the hole in the wall normally it was just rolling productions with different cast members Tell me about Articulate WA. Well, the particular document we produced. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that we talked about earlier. Yeah, oh, look, um, it was certainly born out of a desire to show people how the, how the arts touch people in so many different ways and the impact. And it was very much about the stories of the people who were impacted upon 
rather than the stories of the arts organisations. Uh, generally speaking, if you talk to an arts organisation, certainly my experience early days when I was at the Australia Business Arts Foundation, which I went to post-festival, and we asked people to talk about how they would engage with business. Uh, and, you know, I'd set up these sort of mock um, meetings between the business set, business person who's who's potentially looking at sponsoring something and the arts organisation. And every time the arts organisation would spend an hour talking about themselves and nothing about what particular, the bit asking whether what the business might need or whatever. And I think it is the nature of when you have a particular vision and passion for making work that you're so in that particular tunnel yep. that you find it very hard to be able to talk about or to think about what the impact's going to be. Uh, you might have a an idea that, oh, this is going to be so good that people are really going to love it. And that's, that's the reaction, that it's not about what does this mean in terms of how people live their lives, you know, et cetera. And so it was to try and change that to say, this is not just about we're going to make work. And if you like it, that's fine. If you don't like it, then who cares? Because most of the organisations and the ones that tend to get the, the, the whole dialogue around the arts tends to be very much around the subsidised companies. They are seen as the arts and culture sector, the subsidised. And I try to say, well, it's actually much, much broader than that. You, you, you know, there is a commercial area. The subsidised sector compared to the overall creative industries is so small, really but it takes up so much space and people tend to then treat arts and culture as if it's just that and that it's about a great group of privileged people getting government money to do what they want to do. And we want to change that into, no, actually, this is what they're doing. A lot of people are doing different things. And whether it's... Um, and performing arts especially tends to be, you know, oh, the arts is about... You know, used to be about opera, ballet, theatre, and, and con, con, you know, orchestral music. And of course, it's so much broader than that. Uh, and Articulate was to try and take those stories from the community of people who had engaged with the various art forms, whether it's the nonnas in Balga who, who had been involved in an opera company in their local community and had enjoyed singing songs and how, what it had meant to them uh, as a pope because they were not seen, they were not necessarily the sort of black tie opening night opera lovers in that sense and to try and democratise it I suppose in a way that that engaged with a much broader community to say actually that's quite good, That's yeah no I think that's important we do that Sport in many ways has probably done that right. much more successfully, uh, partly to do with, I think, the organisation of it through school systems, 
there is there are structures there from when you grow up into how you do it and outside the school system there are structures within the community on sort of grassroots sport for young kids and whilst you could say that dance schools are ubiquitous um, and in fact uh, have a huge amount following and most country towns will have either a visiting one in the old days there used to be two that actually were there you know and when you think that some of the David McAllister, Stephen Heathcote were country boys from Western Australia who'd started their career dance schools and ended up you know senior artist and director of the Australian Ballet and when people go oh I don't do ballet it's all a bit too elitist and I go well hang on it's just like the baggy green in cricket they've come up through the grassroots system they've done all of that it's no more elitist than than test cricket is oh yeah but you can go and see test cricket and I said yeah you can go see the bloody ballet if you want to it's a, it, 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 I think people set their own blinkers and I get back to if you don't have curiosity and you completely keep closing down avenues of experiences for your life you are not leaving, leave, living a full life there's a huge funding crisis for the arts happening in the country at present uh, major and minor companies having their budget slashed so how are arts there is no more of a crisis in funding for the arts than there hasn't been happening for over oh, 20 right. 30 okay. years yeah yeah fair the time that there isn't a crisis is probably few and far between it's more so than ever now, this is the, i think every t- in five years time we will be having this conversation Same. and you'll be saying oh it's worse than ever and yet Every time that you think we can sink to a new low, there's always a further low to go. And and it's actually the problem around how you make the conversation central to some sort of political thought. And we've never been good at that. Uh, You know, I think the Chamber was one of the attempts to try and have that voice. But ultimately, there is a deep suspicion at a political level about arts funding and it takes some courageous politicians who actually believe personally in it whether it's a Keating whether it's a a, um, Don Dunstan to show leadership and go hang on this is worth investing in we don't have that leadership, unfortunately. We have many people who claim to have that leadership. People who say, oh, of course we believe in the arts. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a department for the arts. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a minister for the arts. Of course we believe in it. And I constantly go back to them and say, show me the money. Show me the plan, the long-term plan. Show me the money. We have a federal government that currently has and has never had coalition coalition has never had any long-term arts and cultural plan in fact it's studiously avoided one labor has had two or they've had one that keating had and then the second one which they launched um simon keen uh, cream launched prior to his sort of decapitation as a minister <laughs> 
um, and then they lost that that um, particular election. They did. They went to the last election with a cultural plan, which was a re, um, reinvigorated plan from the previous one, which actually had some attempt to map out a long-term role of supporting. From a government perspective, uh, at a state level, they launched a few years ago, the previous government, John Day, launched the Strategic Directions uh, Framework. Uh, they lost that, that um, election. Uh, the Liberals lost the election. Labour came in and said, oh, that's, that's a Liberal uh, framework, so we won't do it. I went to the Minister a number of times and said, listen, this was actually the result of consultation with the minister uh, with the, the sector. You keep saying the sector needs to dictate what it wants from government and what it expects from government, articulate it. They have, and now you're turning it down because you believe it's tainted by the previous government, which is not of your political persuasion. But it's actually the sector's done all the hard bloody work on it. Rip off the badge put your own badge on it, it's quite simple, but it is a long-term plan. And in many cases, people don't like long-term plans for things that they don't see important like bridges or road systems, because it implies that money has to be spent and that doesn't give them flexibility about how they, how they play that political game. It is, it is you know, one could be depressed. <laughs> One could. But, I mean, you know, I've been up and I've been through this process for, oh, you know, 30, yeah, 30 40 years. So I, I kind of look at it with a certain amount of, uh, I don't believe it's the worst we've got to yet. I'm sure there are other times, certainly under Peter Foss in Western Australia, there was some wholesale cutting of uh, of um, funding for arts organisations because he believed that you know, as if you read the letters page, certainly online of the Australian, there is a whole body of people who think that arts funding is anathema, you know, and it's just a bunch of lovies who are just getting a free ride at the taxpayers' extent yeah. expense. So you know. Uh, there's always going to be that dialogue until we change the broader view about its importance. And and I think also the other challenge that there is for the sector is very much a challenge around uh, relevancy. Uh, as the communities change the, the way they take in creative content, as they or experience sort of different views, you know, the base that you know, when I talk to arts organizations about um, what are they doing about their marketing to their members, how are they collaborating with other arts organizations, there'd always been that sort of edge of competitiveness. They said, Oh, we would never do that. I said, But your competition isn't those people, your competition is Netflix. Your competition is the fact that people will go and grab, might go and work out of the gym, grab a takeaway, and then sit down and binge on Netflix for three for three, four hours yeah. Yeah. instead of going out and going and seeing a live show. So that's part of the change that is happening. So what are you doing to make keep yourself relevant in that way? 
Um, and when people say, oh, theatre audiences are dying and things, and you go, well, actually, some of the conversations that are taking place about why theatre audiences are dying isn't really about them dying. It's that they've moved away to other places. Yeah. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. Everything is organic. It's a bit like people saying that the English language is being bastardised by its constant changes. Language has always been organic. Otherwise, we'd still be, you know, doing Chaucer. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's it, you've got to live with this change, and trying to re-grab the glory days is a bit like the Brexiteers in England, who still believe that England is a first world power. I mean, God, please, you know. Who are they deluding themselves with? In your years as an audience member, is there a a concert, a play, a musical, a live event which demonstrates, that's remained with you and demonstrates the great power of the arts? There's not one that actually in itself springs to mind. There are a number that have influenced how I've seen the world and how I... One was Cloud Street, because it was about telling a story about a a particular place. And it was, for me, it was what I thought of Perth. When I first came to Perth, you know, which called itself a city, it was clearly a big country town that thought it was a city, but really it was a big country town. And it always struck me that part of the reason I liked Perth I, one of the reasons I left England actually was I had had such a great time at Bristol University where I'd been at uni that I was tempted to go back there uh, after I'd left uni and live there because it, I'd had such a great time and then I said to myself I've seen all those tragics who had gone to university there and really enjoyed their days there and hung around trying to hang on to you know relive their glory days I don't want to do that. So I'm going, to, I'll go to Australia and I'll see what Bristol is like. Funnily enough, there were many parallels between Bristol and Perth in terms of it had a sense of community. There was, it was easily navigable uh, and and really ended up living in Perth. I thought that was quite ironic. Um, and then when I read Cloud Street and I went, oh, that's an extraordinary... It captured for me what I thought a lot about Perth and where it had loss of innocence and where it was going and how it was travelling from from that sort of sort of country town idyll through to some of the issues that all cities face in terms of disconnection, um, transient populations, all of those. And so that was, I was keen to get it and that's what I originally approached Andrew, um, Alan Beecher, the late Alan Beecher, who had um, done stage adaptations of uh, Suburban Road, Tales from Suburban Road, um, some other, um, uh, I think Elizabeth Jolly piece. But he'd, he'd been involved in doing these adaptations and we, the newspaper of Claremont Street. Yes. Which we'd, so I said to him, I'm really interested in somebody being able to adapt Cloud Street because I think it's, you know, it, 
it's it's so relevant it's a universal story but it's so perth as well um and um i couldn't get the film rights they couldn't get the stage rights because the film rights were um uh had been taken up and because the film rights had been taken up they couldn't get stage rights a few years later uh andrew ross came and saw david and i and said I've got the right stage rights to do Cloud Street. Like, and I got oh, fantastic. And uh, then, but, uh, and, and then it, we started talking about doing it as Black Swan and Belvoir doing as a joint, as a co-production and Neil directing. And I said, this is great. We, and that was the early days of the Major Festivals Initiative, which was as a fund that we had persuaded, I think Adelaide, Ian Scobie from Adelaide Festival, myself, who was my counterpart in Adelaide at Festival at the time, myself and a number of others had said, we're bringing large-scale productions to Australia that have had years on the road, great investment, and the new work that we're creating here is not, is, is looking not good in comparison because it's so raw, it's under-resourced. We need some investment. And so we can, so the major festival initiative started, which really was uh, a, sl- a sum of money. I think it was about, I don't remember how much it was. It was about a hundred and hundred, it was about 500,000 a year for three years and then it would be renewed might have been a bit more maybe 750,000 a year for about three years and the um, and the the deal was that it had to have more at least two festivals uh, to come to be involved in it and the idea was to make works of scale that would be attractive for overseas presenters that we could then take some of the things that we were taking into Australia we could help get to other parts of the world Um, and Cloud Street was one of the early ones and it in many ways Cloud Street was sort of we jagged a great show you know and we kind of were a bit lucky in that sense and and it made it we a bit of a millstone for our own neck because we kind of then thought Christ what are we going to do now in terms of and there are lots of suggestions and there are a few that came through that worked but I don't think anything that worked quite as well as Cloud Street uh, that production that went to Sydney and they did it in where they did somewhere in Sydney and apparently it hailed uh, on the opening night it hailed and the roof or you could there's a hailstorm going onto the roof and made it very difficult for hearing uh, whereas we didn't have that, although it was very hot in the Endeavour boat shed. But that final image of fish jumping into the water. Going into the harbour. Yeah. It was very strong. And uh, and that, you know, there are sometimes those hairs that go up at the back of your neck that you go, wow, um, that's something I will remember. Um, and then to see some of the... Maggie Marin shows some uh, some group uh, Maman, my group Emil Dupois. There was significant shows there, which um, I was lucky to see. I was very lucky at the festival in terms of being exposed to such breadth. 
and what other workplace would you start as a stage manager and end up as general manager? There are not very few that would, that would uh, allow you to do that. Now I know I go on about it, but have you rated and reviewed the Stages podcast yet? Don't tell me it slipped your mind, it's easy. Just go to the podcast directory in iTunes, probably where you've accessed this episode, scroll to the bottom and you'll see a section titled Ratings and Reviews. Tap to rate via the stars, hopefully you'll hit number five, and then follow up with a few choice words, be kind, or phrases by tapping on the section Write a Review. Your support here will help to give the podcast broader exposure and lift us in the ratings. Join me next time when I sit down with Janet Holmes at Court. We discuss the visual arts and her magnificent art collection, literature, theatre and her responsibility as the chair of several arts organisations. As always, I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to Stages. Stages.